0: Chapter 7. I want to pray for us one more time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence through the Word of God. Lord, we want to have contact with you and with what you're saying to us this morning. Lord, this passage is a gospel passage, and it's one that offers two roads a narrow road and a wide road. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would save people who do not yet know you people who are here who I would assume may think they know you, but perhaps some do not yet know you. And I pray that you would quicken hearts and that, Lord, you would draw someone to yourself even this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said before, uh, Judy and I had a fantastic time being away at the Nank conference, and it was a conference filled with teaching, filled with lessons on how the church can counsel each other and be redemptive in its conversations, and there was so much there. But some of you know that we farmed out all of our kids but one before we left, and we took Owen with us. And to take Owen, who's a year and a half, with us on the plane was a conference experience in and of itself. It was uh, lessons learned all around, because uh, on the plane, there were manifold opportunities for people to serve us in ways that I never even anticipated. Magnanimous gestures of nobility all around. We sat in a row of three seats, and all of a sudden, the person that was next to us, about halfway through the trip, just got up and moved to the back. I mean, what a gesture. (laughs) What a kindness. What an act of humility. You know, she really was a very gracious person, and um, she was the only one that spilled during the trip. And uh, anyway, but she she moved to the back, and, you know, we we wrestled Owen, and then he slept, and we, we made it, and went through the conference, and someone else, my parents had... Um, volunteered to watch Owen during the conference so we were we were freed up but on the way back we had Owen once again and we were in the airport at O'Hare in Chicago and ready to go and all of a sudden it dawned on Judy that hey oh I forgot to get gifts for the rest of the kids you know they need to have their welcome back you know parent gift and so Judy took off and it's about 15 minutes until boarding time and so I'm going, I've seen this movie before. Here we go. You know, I've, I've got baby Owen, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I kind of relax and let down and start to talk to a guy who's got a Scottish brogue, and so just wanted to hear him talk, and he's from Anchorage and works the oil industry, and so we're having a good old time. And over the PA, the agent says, you know, now it's time to pre-board for those of you who have children or other needs and uh, somebody slaps me on the back and says, hey, can I borrow your kid so I can get on the plane, you know? And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, boy, you know. Number one, I, I don't want to hold up everybody. But number two, I'm thinking, I really do want to board with Owen before everybody else. But I had Judy's ticket with me, so I've got a dilemma, you know? And I'm, in my heart, I'm thinking, I really want to beat the crowd. And, you know, everything's changed. And so I'm meandering my way over in front of everybody. And with an attempt to hold off the crowd and buy time for Judy to get back, I'm kind of giving the agent my ticket and talking about my other ticket, you know, socializing that, calling Judy on the cell phone. And I hear her panting as she's racing down the hallway giving me her ETA estimated time of arrival, and it's, it's coming, you know, up, and all of a sudden she bounds around the corner, and she's there, and we make it, and I give the agent my ticket, and I feel the crowds pressing on me, right, you know, behind me, saying, you've just held up the entire plane, but we make it on, and as we transition onto the plane, another announcement is spoken over the PA, and one that's very clarifying to the reality of what we are doing, The announcement says, and you've heard these announcements before, you have just entered into the plane that is going to Anchorage, Alaska, and if you are not planning to go to Anchorage, Alaska, now would be a time for you to depart and get off of the plane. And I thought to myself, you know, that clarifies everything, because if I wasn't going to Alaska, no matter how much effort I put into getting on the plane first with my baby, all of that would be a sham, because if I was going in a different direction, why was I so stressed out to get on the plane first in the first place? It would have been a big sham. You know, and Al Mohler, during the... Um, Nank Conference, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, made a statement that reminded me of that announcement over the PA. It was a very clarifying statement in one of his sermons. It was probably the thunder and lightning moment of the conference. And he said that death is on everyone's horizon. And he began to talk about heaven and eternity. And As I was thinking about that, I was thinking there are statements and things that people say that sort of clarify everything that you're about. It's the idea of, are you really on the right plane or not? And Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 7, where he talks about a wide road and a narrow road. And in essence, he's wrapping up his entire sermon here by saying a clarifying, head-clearing statement. He's talked a lot about what it looks like to live for Christ and to have the right attitudes and to live the Christian life. But at the end of his sermon, he lays out the most important thing for you to hear, which is you need to question whether or not you are on the right road in the first place. Are you on the right plane or not? In other words, are you going into the kingdom? We've talked a lot about what it looks like to live in the kingdom living, the Christian life here on earth. But if you're not headed to heaven, after all, it's all a big sham, right? All of your Christian living, all of your sort of religious duties are all a big waste of time if you're not truly on the right path, going in the right direction. You all of this sort of came to a, a clear reality in my thinking when I came home from the conference and got a call from Pastor Mike Weber, and he told me that Paul McGrady had called him. He's one of our doormen and, and faithful um, servants in our church, and his wife, Nancy, who has suffered cancer, was with him in the hospital and has been for um, the last couple of weeks, and I was told that Paul was saying that Nancy is at death's door, and so I went there on Friday night and walked into the hospital, and it was just Paul and Nancy at that point, and she was unconscious and sort of groping for breath during that time, a very, very disconcerting scene, and yet beautiful at the same time because Paul was walking in faith and loving his wife and sitting with her and and standing with her at the end loving her, ministering to her, in sort of the midst of the sad, sobering reality of death. And I was told this morning before I'm standing here that Nancy went to be with the Lord at one o'clock this morning. And so she is in the presence of God, and she is cancer-free now, and she is dancing before the Lord in joy and freedom And we we rejoice in that. And at the same time, we are sobered by the reality of death. The kingdom of God and thinking about eternity is sort of this head-clearing thing that Jesus is doing at the end of his sermon. He's bringing his hearers into the sobering reality that we are going in one direction or the other. And we are ultimately going to stand before our Lord and give an account And we are ultimately going to be shown to either be in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom of God. And so my heart this morning is for you to sit and evaluate yourself to see if you truly are in the kingdom. We've talked a lot about what it looks like to live for the king how to obey, how to pray, how to walk, what kind of attitude should you have. But really, everything comes down to one point that Jesus is making here, and that is that there is one way to the kingdom, and that's through Christ alone on the narrow road. And so I'm going to give you three checkpoints this morning, the three checkpoints that Jesus gives through this sermon. Three checkpoints on the way to the kingdom. The first checkpoint is choosing the right road. Choosing the right road. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus brings his hearers here on the hillside to a crossroads, to to a point of decision where they are evaluating themselves to see if they are entering in through the narrow way or if they are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Verse 12 begins with what's called the golden rule. The golden rule. And this is not some sort of moral command that helps your quality of life. This is a command that summarizes all of the teaching of scripture and shows a person how you can live and obey all of the law and the prophets in one fell swoop by loving. It says, whatever you wish to, wish others would do to you, do also to them. What's he saying? He's saying that we are called to love people in a way that we are selfless and willing to get into other people's skin, other people's shoes, other people's circumstances, and ask this question. How, if I were living their life, would I want to be loved? That's the question that Jesus is telling people to ask themselves. And if you answer that question, well, this is how I'd want to be loved if I were in that situation, then do that for that person. You say, well, that sounds like good, healthy advice. Let me put it another way. A person won't ask that kind of question and won't live that kind of selflessness towards someone else unless their heart is transformed, unless they are on the narrow road. This is a lead-in to Jesus' two roads. He's saying a broad-road person will just blow a statement like that off or will turn a statement like that into, into a selfish living. Confucius made a statement like that where he said, What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. <laughs> you see the selfishness in that? Like if you if you don't want to have a hard life, then don't do things to people that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Where's... where's Where's the emphasis? It's on the person, not God. The Jewish rabbi, Hillel, who was during this time, uh, the time of Jesus, said, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. To obey the golden rule is to be on the narrow road. And so that brings us to the first checkpoint in verse 13. J.C. Ryle, by the way, he said so many intricate questions would be decided at once if this rule were honestly used. But it's only going to be used if you enter, verse 13, by the narrow gate. It's the first checkpoint. What's a narrow gate? A narrow gate is a gate that is so narrow that you yourself can only fit through it. You can't bring your religious baggage with you. You can't bring your suitcases, right, to continue the airport and traveling metaphor. You can't bring all your suitcases with you through this turnstile. Because we can't prop ourselves up enough to get ourselves into heaven. We have to let our stuff go. And when God changes your heart, you realize that the only faith that you can exercise is a faith that's saying this. I cannot save myself. There's a narrow road, and I've got to leave it all behind if I'm going to fit through the door. It's what John Bunyan, a pastor from the 1600s, a Puritan pastor who was kind of a hero of the faith. He was put in jail for taking a stand against the Church of England. He was kind of a rebel preacher. He would preach to his congregants over the wall. While he was in prison in Bedfordshire, he wrote the, the world's second bestseller next to the Bible, which is called The Dangerous Journey more popularly known as the Pilgrim's Progress. And he called this gate, which was in his, the whole allegory was inspired from these verses, he called this gate the wicket gate. When you think of a wicket, think of you know, the different um, metal sort of uh, wickets that you use in croquet, that you shoot the ball through. It's something that's narrow, or sort of a garden gate that only you can go through. And in the allegory... The pilgrim, who realizes that his city is going to be destroyed because he's read it in a book, which is a picture of the Bible. The pilgrim realizes that he needs to leave the city of destruction. And so he comes across a man who's called Evangelist. An evangelist who just pictures anyone who's giving the message of the Bible. He says, do you see yonder wicked gate? Do you see the shining light? Bunyan's point was this, there's only one gate, there's only one way, and only through a supernatural awakening will you see that gate. My heart is for you, if you haven't seen the entry point to the narrow road, that you'll see it. And what is that gate? It's Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus said in John 10, I am. I am the door Jesus is the only door he's the way in John 14 6 I am the way the truth and the life no man can come to the father but through me who is Jesus Jesus is a man who is the messenger and the savior at the same time he's preaching a gospel and saying I am the gospel if you want in you've got to come through me it's a narrow road And it's just such an important message to hear in our day because so many people want to make more ways to heaven and even more different versions of Jesus than there really are in the Bible. There's only one Lord and one Savior and one God and one Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one. You can't be syncretistic and have the gospel. You can't be hot sinking all religions to kind of create this fabricated way into heaven. Where people, oh, you know, those people over there who've never heard the gospel, they kind of awaken somehow mysteriously through their own religion and end up finding Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, how will they hear without a preacher, right? That's why we have missionaries. That's why we have missionaries. Let's call the missionaries home if we don't believe this. We have missionaries on the field to say there's a narrow road and I'm that evangelist. Do you see Jesus Christ as the only way? That's why we support missions. That's what this gospel is all about. There's two roads which lead to two different destinations. Now, if you've heard me preach over this year and a half, you realize that I believe in the sovereignty of God. I think it's one of the most comforting doctrines in all of the Bible. It's one of the comforting truths of Scripture where we can pillow our heads and know that God is completely in control and that God is the Savior of all. He's the one who calls people and draws people to himself and saves them. In the midst of that doctrine, though, there is a general call for people to respond. Look at this verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. It reminds me so much of Joshua after he had led the children of Israel over um, the dry land of the Jordan River that had been stood up on a heap. And he looked at them and said, choose you this day whom you will serve. you going to serve the Canaanite gods or you're going to serve the Lord? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Enter. Enter. Christianity is proactive and It stands in contrast to the world. The world is on the wide road and is oblivious to, what, to where they're going. They're, it's like they're on the bus and they're not even driving. They're just drifting along on the highway, going at top speed to a, a bridge that's out, where one car or one truck is just going over the edge, down into the abyss, one after the other. People are oblivious to what's going on. It's like the sort of oblivion that our country had to slavery. Remember the ills of slavery, how people were stolen from a country and brought here to serve us. And we we justified, Christians justified, and non for having slaves, buying and selling. You say, well, that was then, this is now, we're a different place. Well, our world today has horrific moral ills that continue on. What about child sex slavery that's going on and that trafficking that's going on all around, even in Alaska and around our country and around our world? It's an egregious sin and it's going on. And if we don't become aware of these things and become involved to try to help people with the gospel, then what are we doing? We're we're turning a blind eye to these things. You say, Well, that's illegal. That doesn't really, you know, count for, for us. Well, what about abortion? What about babies that are being killed every single day and hour? We don't want to turn a blind eye to these things. We don't want to just be oblivious to that. Well, how much more at a deeper level should we be aware of people who are on the broad road leading to destruction? Just going over the edge, one after the other, into hell. People are dying every three seconds. Just boom, boom, boom. Is dying and dying, and they're going on this broad road, and it says that many are finding this way that leads to destruction, and only a few get into heaven. It needs to concern us. This, these are soul-shaking categories, are they not? I mean, we have we categorize people as successful, as rich, as poor, as you know, proactive, as introverts, extroverts, but we need to categorize people in terms of a narrow road and a broad road, and be ashamed of that. Jesus was unashamed early in his ministry, probably 30 years old, preaching this message early in his ministry, becoming very unpopular by drawing a line. We need to know that people are like the tribe of Korah in the book of Numbers. Do you remember that story? Moses was in leadership. He had Aaron as his right-hand man, and they had led the children of Israel thus far You know, in the 40-year journey towards the promised land and Korah stood up against Aaron and Moses and said, we want to defy your leadership. And Moses immediately sought God on his face in the book of Numbers and said in chapter 16, Lord, uh, I'm I'm begging you, please do not judge the tribe of Korah for what they've done. And in Numbers 16, 32, it says that the, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed Korah up. And they went down into the pit alive. The earth closed over them. It's a picture of hell. Yes, will our flesh be annihilated when we die? Yeah, it will be until it's resurrected for judgment. But people who go to hell are eternally being destroyed. Their flesh is annihilated, but they're going to hell with full awareness of their suffering and screaming and shouting and grinding their teeth. They're feeling empty. I was thinking of hell and destruction and thinking of some of the most fearful times I've ever had in my life. I've been fearful before, you know, falling down. That sort of, that feeling of, you know, what's going to happen to me. I remember one time I was racing down sort of a a slope, a hillside, and I was... um, chasing after a person. We were young 20-year-olds and kind of foolish, and we were on this sort of shale rock. And the one bit of advice I was told before I ran down is, whatever you do, don't let your head get above your legs, because you'll fall forward. And so what happened is I was racing and began to fall headlong towards the rocks below. And right as I was going towards the rocks at the last moment, because... I wrestled by God's grace and providence. I knew how to sort of dive roll over top the rocks and just landed on my legs, basically injury-free. But that kind of fear is what people will feel for all of eternity. That moment, that that moment of, I can't save myself. I felt that fear one time when my youngest, uh, my oldest daughter, who was my youngest, I don't know if she was the youngest at that point, probably four or five years old, and uh, so we had her at the beach, in Virginia Beach, and we were playing with her in the water, and, and I had her on a surfboard, and I was sort of sending her back and forth, and you know, we didn't have any stinking life jackets, right? We're cool, and so she's just doing her thing, and then it was time for us all to go and pack up, and so I got the board, and you know, we're, we're kind of doing our thing, and beginning to pack up, and it was a pretty choppy day. I mean, it was, you know, kind of some turbulent water out there, and I turned around, and Riley was nowhere to be found, and all you could see was dark, murky ocean water that you couldn't see into, and all I could think is she is gone and got sucked underneath, and so we are screaming and shouting desperately to find Riley, thinking she is being swept in the undercurrent down the beach, and we turn around, and Ultimately, in our panic, we were running back to the shore, and we see Riley had taken off on her own little stroll down the beach just for a little sightseeing tour, and she was coming back to us. And, you know, just as we were so joyful in that moment to find that she was alive, we were completely beside ourselves in terror, thinking she had died or was drowning. Do we think of people in those terms? that people are drowning, that people need the gospel. They need to hear about the narrow road. They do. A road that's hard, it says. It's different than the way that's easy, but as Chrysostom, the great golden-throated preacher, early in church history said, this is a hard road with a light and easy yoke and burden. That's the mystery of the gospel. Give me the hard road, right? Because it's going to heaven. And there's Jesus there. And so there's joy in the midst of a difficult life where you you give up the pleasures of this world and you're willing to put your life on the line for Christ. That's what's the call here. And that's the first checkpoint. The second checkpoint is verses 15 to 20. And it's the checkpoint to avoid the wolves. Avoid the wolves. Choose the right path and then avoid the wolves. The scene here is being through the entry point, on the narrow road, and then you're looking around, realizing that there are enemies lurking around in the shadows that desire to gobble you up. They desire to derail your faith. And there's a picture here of wolves and then two trees. Trees that bear good fruit and trees that bear bad. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's cloth clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The key here is to understand that these wolves are in a disguise. They're using disguises. They're unlike, verse 6, the pigs and the dogs that you're not supposed to throw holy spiritual food to. You can see, you know, the hogs and the dogs out in the open. You understand who they are, but the wolves are stealthy, and they're on the attack. And they want to take you out. They want to derail your faith. They want to sort of take you out of the battle spiritually... ...by watering down the message. Oh, they won't talk about indicting doctrines. They'll talk about softer things in the Bible. They'll talk about God's love. And they won't talk about sin. They won't talk about judgment. They won't talk about wrath... ...because it opens up the false teacher to, its own, to his or her own sin... Here's some marks, here's some fruit of false teachers. Number one, their goal is to derail believers. 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander were marked out by Paul as those who needed to be delivered over to Satan because they were causing people to have a bad conscience and they were making shipwreck of people's faith. Number two, a false teacher looks like the real thing. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 through 15. If you were to read through this passage, you would see that the word disguising or disguises or disguise is used three different times in a row. They disguise themselves like Satan, who is an angel of light. You know, there's a lot of talk, and I recognize that there's a lot of talk about vampires these days. I mean, Halloween is coming, right? And there's a lot of books that are out that... Teenagers and young adults are reading about vampires and witches and witchcraft, and that can be very scary and very disconcerting, and we need to monitor that and understand um, what's going on in our culture, culture around us, that fascination. But what's scarier to me at points is the subtle ways that Satan gets in. I mean, when... When somebody's dressed up like a vampire, it's pretty easy to say, "Wow, well, that's bad. You know, but, but when someone comes in and says, look, I look like a Christian and you know, I'm, I'm just preaching a message that, that can help your felt needs and encourage you along. But they're doing it to the exclusion of doctrine. They're not talking about truth and they're not talking about the real gospel. That's when things get real shaky. You know, I was remembering in ninth grade how there was a person who, a teacher, who was the most popular teacher in junior high. And he taught a world religions class. And it was so interesting to me because there were so many students who were affected by this man. He was kind of a young man, good-looking guy. And I would just hear people talk about, you know, that class, it, it kind of put things together in my mind because basically he was saying that, all different religions and all different cultures have their own version of finding God. And so you don't really need to say that just Christianity is the way. And back then in the 80s, in our culture, we were more Christianized. But, but that was sort of the beginning in my experience as a ninth grader to hear that, look we're going to kind of put Christianity and God to the side and talk more in terms of multiculturalism and multiculturalism that can lead you all to God. And what really made it hit home was when a friend of mine in P.E. class came out of that class and said, you know, and this guy, by the way, we had the same name, we had the same sort of look, we had the same interest, we were very similar. We had parents who were Christians in a, in a very traditional way Christian um, church where we were raised in two different churches, and, and he said, you know, what if our Christianity really is just something that we believe because our parents taught us to believe it? And what if what this teacher has said really is true, and all roads do lead to heaven? What's interesting to me is I've kind of kept track of this young man, and we don't communicate, but... My mom was good friends with his mom, and so they were great friends in church together, and this mother just died of cancer. And so I've heard about how this uh, young man is responding to that, and he's still single, and he uh, does not love the Lord. He's perhaps open to the Lord now because death is on his horizon. It's in his windshield. He understands the reality of it. But I just can't help but think that this teacher took part in shipwrecking his faith. You know, maybe it wasn't that he was saved yet, but he knew the truth and it was, it was derailed with this message. And that's the way a false teacher is. Comes in and looks the part, looks innocent, looks harmless, is covered in the sheep's wool, but really is the wolf that needs to be understood and recognized and seen for what he or she is a wolf will try to build skepticism regarding the gospel, build doubt into people's mind. And they, for another point, they attack from the inside. They come from the inside. Acts chapter 20 is where Paul was meeting with the elders of the church of Ephesus, a very strong church at the time. And it was down in Miletus where he met them. And he's saying, look, I've been with you for three years. I've taught you the word of God. I'm going to Rome. There's been a prophecy given. I'm going to be put in shackles. And so this is sort of my last will and testament. And what he says in verses 28 to 30, picking up on verse 29, fierce wolves will come in among you. And then verse 30, and this is sort of a soul-sickening phrase where it says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. What's Paul saying there? He's looking at these men eyeball to eyeball and saying, listen, even from among this group, wolves could be coming. From among our own selves, there could be a Judas Iscariot in our midst that will twist Scripture. Oftentimes, a false teacher won't completely, you know, say, I'm going to jettison a passage. They'll just twist it like Satan did in the garden. Confuse things. Take the sharp points off the gospel and twist it. There's so many sermons that are out there. They water down the message to our next point. Um, Modern false teachers, they're like movies who are giving the message that, you know, and movies preach a good sermon, right? You're really generally good. You ever hear that in a movie? These are modern Hollywood preachers who are preaching into our ears. Um, Aliens, they're real, right? (laughs) We're, We're not so special out there. It's really the alien world that's the higher being. They're the special ones. Uh, Let's worship Mother Earth, you know, because that's really God. And that's what we should live for. Your good will outweigh the bad. Your good deed that you just did, that will secure you for eternity. And then oftentimes you hear there's not really an afterlife. There's just nirvana. A false teacher won't preach hard truth because hard truth exposes the very sin that the false teacher is taking part in. And I've seen this before. Second Peter talks about it. False teachers are filled with sensuality. And they try to entice people with sensuality. And they try to draw people in. And it's sick. And it's sad. And so they don't want to preach the doctrine that would expose that. That's why Paul told Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine. You say, I would never be susceptible to something like that. But I've seen people do it. I've seen people fall off the boat. I've seen people get shipwrecked. I have Judy and I just at the NANC conference. We were there and we talked to a leader from the Masters College. We saw sort of a, a group of um, guys and gals who were um, the dean staff and the leadership at the Masters College, and they were freshmen. Many of them were freshmen when we were still there. When I was um, there as a, a resident director, they were just coming to college and they had kind of risen through the ranks, and so they're there. And we're talking to them, and one of them has a brother who was a prominently known leader. Um, at the Master's College as a student. He was an older student, had a pretty stellar testimony. He would stand up and sing and preach in chapel, I believe, and he became a pastor ultimately. He led a convocation service in front of thousands of people at a graduation at Grace Community Church. He was discipled and handpicked and chosen from John MacArthur to be discipled by him on numerous occasions. And this younger brother of this guy was telling us, please pray for this person, because he's hit rock bottom again, and he's in prison for selling methamphetamines and using. And it was a sad story, but it was also one with a little bit of hope, because he's, this man is so down and out now in prison that he has nowhere to go but seeking Christ. And so we're praying that this will be a turning point in this man's life. But you ask yourself the question, how can someone who seems so spiritually solid on the outside be so messed up on the inside? Well, This is my answer. I think that many people through, whether it's Bible studies or whether it's um, a church setting or whether it's Christian school or what have you, they are finding themselves to be under some kind of life support in their Christian situation. And when the life support is on and they are propped up by others, then they're fine. But when the life support comes off, what happens? They flatline spiritually because there's no life there in the first place. You have to have that kind of integrity. And false teachers will lead people astray who think that they're in the kingdom, but they're really not. They're not far from the kingdom, and then a wolf will derail them. You say, well, that that would never happen to me. Then why is this in here? I was thinking of another false teacher that, or a false teacher that Judy and I were exposed to. It was so interesting because this was a guy named Tony Alamo. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was leading people... a stray out in Canyon Country, California, which is right next to the Master's College. So Judy and I would go on dates and parks, and we would see people handing out flyers for Tony Alamo and his movement. And then we came to Little Rock, Arkansas, and his other place that he was based in the country happened to be just outside of Little Rock. So there, again, Tony Alamo's disciples passing out flyers and putting them under windshield wipers, et cetera. And we sort of interacted with a couple of these people, both in California and Little Rock. And whoa, you know, they're just coming at you, they're militant, they know what they believe, and you sort of like dive in your car and drive away. (laughs) Well, what happened is, is this man's fruit ultimately exposed himself. A false teacher will ultimately be exposed. Their fruit eventually comes out, and in 2009 it says, uh, it said in a news report that Alamo was convicted of ten counts of interstate transportation of minors for illegal sexual purposes, rape, sexual assault, and contributing to the delinquency of minors. Remember that coming out. And we knew the reality was that this was a false teacher, but he had that insidious, horrible, sinful life underneath. Had bad doctrine and a bad life behind it. And that's what Jesus is warning these disciples of. First John two nineteen it says, They went out from us that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Well, again, to follow Jesus' train of thought is to understand that he's saying you have to be on the narrow road. And then once you're on the narrow road, watch out for the wolves. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So we can discern that the wolves are there. We can be protected by discerning their fruit. But lastly, the journey comes to an end And the end of the journey is where you're standing before the throne of Jesus. Here it is, Jesus on the hillside, the peasant leader, right? He's the carpenter's son, preaching how to live a kingdom life as you follow Christ. But then he says, look, you better make sure you're on the narrow road. You better not get derailed by a false teacher, because one day, ultimately, you're going to have to give an account, and the account will be given to me. It's an allusion to the great white throne judgment. Look at verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them these heartbreaking words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's two different people pictured here. A person either has spiritual integrity or they don't. There's the person who believes that what they're doing gets them into the kingdom of heaven. I cast out demons. I did it in Jesus' name. I prophesied. I did these mighty works. But Jesus is going to look at that person and say, look, you had a religion, but you didn't know me. I didn't know you. You didn't have real faith. You were just a doer, but you weren't obeying my will personally. And he'll say, depart from me. This person is pictured as someone who has a foundation that is cracked and not strong. Look at verse 24. Two houses. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Let's stop there. You know, a rock here. The rock here is not Christ. So often in the New Testament, the picture of the rock is Christ. But here in this passage, the rock is is picturing true spiritual integrity. It means that you're the real thing. And if you're the real thing, no matter how tough life gets, you're not going to crumble. You're not going to fall down. I've seen houses with cracked foundations. Ultimately, the cracks crawl up the walls and you have to go hire a company to come in and prop your foundation up with piers right underneath and jack your house up just to survive it. But if a house has a strong foundation, it can take on any storm or any situation. I've also seen homes that are built on the sand. Look at what happens here, verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. I've seen homes built on the sand, I have. Growing up in Virginia on the east coast, I used to go down the barrier islands um, called the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And people like that area because it's so beautiful with the sand dunes and the ocean on one side and sort of the, the, the water on the other side, the still water on the other side. And they build these homes that ultimately, during hurricane season, become houseboats. They do. Every year, you just see one drifting out to sea. And you go, wow, I hope you had great insurance, you know, and I hope you like your, your new houseboat. But, but anyway, to each his own. I mean, hey, you know, it's a beautiful place. I do understand that. But you don't build your house on the sand and expect that it's going to survive the elements because it won't. Red Cross will come and beat on the door and say, hey, get out of here. Evacuate your house. And they say, hey, welcome to the hurricane party. Come on in. And then a lot of people die because they built their house on the sand. Integrity is what makes for longevity in the Christian life. One house, it did not fall, and the other house fell. Look at the last verses here in 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes, they taught the wide road theology. They said, hey, just obey the letter of the law and don't worry about it. Jesus, he's cutting right to the heart. Are you on the right plane? Are you headed toward the kingdom? Or are you on the wide road that leads to destruction? I hope these checkpoints have opened you up to consider, am I on the narrow road? You need to ask yourself that question because that is the concern of the hour. There's nothing more important that you can know about yourself than to know whether or not you're headed to the kingdom. Here's a couple points of application. Number one, do you view the world through Jesus' checkpoints? Your soul, your family, your relationships? You should. Number two, is Jesus your single option? He has to be. There's two roads, but there's one choice. Hard road that's your easy yoke. You know, when's the last time you asked somebody if they are on the narrow road? We need to be asking people. We do. Number three. Are you ready to face Jesus? Is death on your horizon? Are you thinking about eternity? Need to be. Are you concerned with other people's end? We must be. We must. With this in mind, let's bow our heads now as we prepare to receive the Lord's table this morning. And I would invite the men who are going to wait on us to come forward at this time. The Bible says to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. there's also a call to examination in First Corinthians chapter 11. It says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So if, the point is, if you're, as your heads are still bowed, um, don't partake of this table if you're not really a Christian. But if you are a believer and you're right with the Lord, please freely receive these elements this morning. And if you're from a different church and are a Christian, receive these elements this morning. And perhaps you're sitting there and you're awakening for the first time to the gospel, and you believe that you're becoming a Christian, that Christ has saved you, then I would say as a testimony of faith, receive these elements this morning. As the men pass the bread... Now I'll read a passage that is from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul speaks of the Passover. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's meditate on these words as we receive the bread. Let's take this wafer in our hands and recognize that this is a symbol. It's a symbol of our faith. It's not magical to take this into our mouths, but it is significant. It's a significant act that we're doing right now because it's a statement of faith that we believe that Jesus' body is a sacrifice, the only sacrifice for our sins. Let's do it in remembrance of him. Now as the men pass the cup I'm going to read one more passage. It's 1 Corinthians 11. Still talking in terms of Jesus at Passover. Verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This juice that we have is symbolic in that it's red like the blood that was spilt on Calvary, on the place of the skull. It was spilled as a sacrifice, and it pictures the atoning work of Christ. Atonement means covering, and all of your sins are covered in Christ alone because we have that promise and that assurance. Let's drink together now. Father, we thank you for communion, for the gospel. It is our only hope, and we thank you that you have drawn us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite Brian Daigle, one of our missionaries, to come up for our final.